Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB. I'm joined in the studio today by Kate Wolf, LARB's Editor-at-Large, and also by Medea Ocher, LARB's Managing Editor. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Today we have a two-part conversation, starting with our interview with Carmen Maria Machado and concluding with our conversation with Jenny Zhang, both of which were recorded at the LA Times Festival of Books. Let's go back in time, straight to the interviews. We're at the LA Times Festival of Books and excited to be speaking with writer, essayist, and critic Carmen Maria Machado. Machado's writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Granta, Tin House, McSweeney's, The Believer, and Guernica, among others. Her debut short story collection, the multiple award-winning and National Book Award finalist, Her Body and Other Parties, was published late last year by Grey Wolf. Welcome to the show, Carmen. Thanks for having me. I was trying to figure out how to describe the collection I'm interested. I do not in the, envy the task. Yeah, I, I'm interested in the kind of genre play that you do. So mm. I guess one way in to describing what the book is for readers is a series of riffs on tropes or genres. So like horror, sci-fi, ghost story, the fairy tale was another one. In order to tell a variety of stories about women's experiences. Does that sound... Like it's, I'd say that's accurate, except I think of them as both riffs and the stories themselves. Like they are horror stories okay. and fairy tales and science fiction and fantasy, and are also like riffs on essential tropes. So they're sort of they're both at the same time. But so yeah, I'd say that's accurate. Can, so can we mm. talk about that kind of contestation that you're having with genre, where sure. you're both like operating within the genre mm-hmm. and then actually performing like an auto critique of that genre? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, all genres have like tropes, right? And that includes realism, right? Like we're in literary fiction, quote unquote literary fiction, right? That have these sort of like, yeah, familiar elements, they're repeating tropes of various kinds. And I don't, you know, hate, I don't think those are necessarily bad. I'm just really interested in like deconstructing them and figuring out like, why is it that in these like repeated sort of experiments within these genres, these elements kept popping up? And, you know, sometimes it's because like someone writes something really iconic and so everyone wants to kind of repeat it. And sometimes it's because like it just, the trope becomes just like this like quality of the genre. And yeah, and I'm just really interested in like interrogating those pieces. And I feel like often interrogating those pieces like leads me to these like really beautiful places so for example like I have a story that's actually not in the collection so maybe this isn't the best example but like (laughs) where I was watching a horror movie and thinking about how I loved the moment in horror films or like the sort of sequence of moments where like something is going slightly wrong and like wrong slightly wrong things kind of keep gathering and eventually you have like an extremely wrong situation that begins with these like tiny details Mm. and so I wrote a story that I called horror story that I published in Granta which was entirely made up of these details it was just like the slow descent into the horror and that was just very interesting to me as a writer and and I got to like play with that while also telling a horror story you know and so that dynamic is really interesting to me as a writer and I don't know it's just something that I am drawn to I feel like that's what or one of the things that made Get Out such a genius movie right where it's like usually we have these tiny little things and it leads to horror and in Get Out we had tiny little things that we see every single day um, right, yes. that recur on a regular basis that are otherwise totally not noticeable 
and they lead to, then you finally see the horror right. of the situation. I just sort of feel like the most successful versions of genres are ones that are both examples of them and autocritique. I mean, I do think that's like really important because I feel like sometimes people are just like, I'm going to make a horror movie. And like, there's such a thing as like an example of a genre where it's like just pleasurable and that it's indulging in the tropes but doing it really well. And that's like its own pleasure, right? But I do feel like for me, what's really interesting is like when that's happening and also there's this sense of reflection or this sense of looking back to the tradition of whatever the genre is and sort of exploring that and pushing on that a little bit while also being a really good version of itself. Mm -hmm. And that to me is always like the best and that's what I enjoy. So I think that's what I enjoy making as well. Is there one particular genre that you work and play in that feels the most fruitful to you or I'm sure they all have their... I mean, right now horror is kind of where I think I'm really hitting something really exciting to me that I'm just really interested in and specifically right now I'm really focusing on haunted houses like I'm really interested in like haunted spaces and like what does it mean for a space to be haunted and like how like thinking about things like architecture and like you know the poetics of space and like what does it mean for that to have these like meaning you know and haunting is something that you can't help but return to there's a Mm -hmm. sense of like inevitability and like coming back to a space and so I'm just really interested in that right now for some reason I don't know why like I'm just talking about it a lot I'm teaching a class about it next spring at Penn. They were like, what kind of class do you want to do? And I was like, yeah, can I do a class on haunted houses? And they were like, sure. And I was like, yes, that's like <laughs> all I'm reading right now and all I'm thinking about. So like, it's just like a weird thing that I'm really obsessed with. So yeah, so I feel like right now it's horror, but like I also, in the past, it's been fantasy and like, you know, and I'm sure it could change to other genres, you know, I'm just, yeah, or like folk tales I'm also really interested in right now. So uh, do you have a personal haunted house story? Or is this something no, you're really actually, into literature it's weird, solely? It's weird because I don't, I actually don't believe in, I don't believe in ghosts or angels or anything. Like I'm actually a total, I do not believe in anything I don't think that's weird, by the way. Yeah. yeah. I think well, that's weird. normal. I think it's weird because it's like, oh, I talk about are those things. Like I wish those <laughs> things were real. I don't think they are, but like I'm very not, I don't believe that those, you know, and so for me, it's less about like, I'm trying to explain something and more like, I'm just philosophically like interested in what does it mean for a space to be haunted? Well, that's mm-hmm. like the eruption of the past and the present, exactly, right? right, which right. Is it's what, like the place where- Which is a very real experience right, that horror right. makes manifest in like a very concrete totally. way. Totally, and so I have like this like essay I'm sort of working on very slowly where I talk about what makes a space haunted. One of them is, right, the past erupting in the present and like that collision that happens. And there's actually this really fascinating book by Colin Dickey called- LARP. He's a LARP contributor. Oh, okay, yeah. He's a really LARP. amazing book that just proud. came out called- um, It was like- You know, Ghostland. Go- yeah, yeah, and it's, he tours the country. Right, yeah. he tours like haunted attractions in the United States and like talks about, but like what's amazing about it is that, for example, like he talks about this, supposedly very haunted street in Virginia and it's weird so basically he's like so he talks about like going there and he talks about all the ghosts that supposedly exist there and he's like it's super weird that all the ghosts in the stories are all white because this is literally exactly where like tens of thousands of slaves were bought and sold in this exact spot and yet none of the ghosts in these narratives are black even though this like systematic dehumanization happened like literally right here it's like what does that say about our ability to like grapple with our own past and like the United States' ability to like come to terms with like slavery and other things other atrocities of its past and he talks about other examples as well and it's like really interesting and that book just like I just tore I loved it so much and I felt like it really got at this yes like what does it mean what does a haunting mean? What do ghosts mean? I wonder if part of the explanation for something like that is their recognition of soulhood. And we recognize yeah. the soul within yeah. a white body, 
Yeah. Exactly. And not within a black body, right? right so right, as right. many black bodies that could have existed in that space, yeah. well, none of them were human. So. And there was this other really interesting essay in the collection about the, actually, it's near her, the Winchester Mystery House, mm-hmm. uh, right? right? And he basically talked about how, like, the widow Winchester was actually this sort of avant-garde amateur architect. And, like, we think of it as, like, she went mad and she the ghost compelled her and she had to, like, build all this crazy house when, in fact, she was, like, this really intelligent. There was no evidence of her being actually mad, right? right? Oh, but, like, right. We, it's, like, it's easy for us to think about her being, like, crazed as opposed to like being like an interesting smart person who was like I have like weird ideas about architecture and I'm gonna like ma- and I'm richer right. than God so, so I can like compelling. manifest and, them and you it's know? also yeah. a gun it was a, made with a gun fortune yes right? yeah. so mm-hmm. also yeah, yeah, yeah. the association of of all the things that violence, guns. right, yeah. right, right. But also, yeah, and also, yeah. but there's like a lot of stories, and it all involves her just being like mad with grief. Uh-huh. Well, that's also right. the trope, right? That's right, how we contain right. a particular exactly. kind of story that we don't. Which is what I love about the play that you do with genre, because genre, yeah. in many ways, for the writer and for the reading public, is about containment, right? It's about expectation, format, rhythm. Well, that's what right, all genre basically is: is like readerly expectations. It's like what can you expect or not expect to happen within the parameters of this kind of story, right? Which I think is like what makes yeah, which I feel like is a way more interesting. So I feel like the conversation about genre is kind of boring to me. It's boring to me in a lot of ways. Not not this particular. I'm like, like sorry. <laughs> I'm like this is very boring. No, um, but like people want to ask me a lot. Like oh, like you know, how are lit and genre at odds with each other? And yeah, exactly. Like people are really, you know, eye roll. Like I'm always like, oh my God, like all genres have their own parameters. And so like all writers in those genres are doing are just like setting up and knocking down expectations for readers. That's all genre is. And like thinking about it as anything more than that is like, people want to be in their own little corners, like playing with toys and like telling you, you can't come in here. Like, you know, it's very like weird, hostile thing. But like really all it is is just like, we're just like sort of establishing rules and then playing with the edges of those rules and that's like what genre is. And that to me is more inter- way more interesting than like any other sort of aspect of it. Do you think that there's more interest now in science fiction and horror now that there seems to be quite a bit, these, a more literary crossover possibly than there was in the past or do you think that people are starting to recognize genre more now I mean I think I think that certainly a thing has happened in the last like I don't know 15-20 years where like these parameters these sort of these like writers are sort of moving between these spaces a little more easily and I think so yeah but like people have always been writing literary horror you know quote unquote whatever that means like literary like those have always existed and like people have always read those things and like you know Shirley Jackson was like a genre like a literary genre writer who like existed in both spaces right and so like you know and I feel like now we're like a little more sort of like you know the fact that for example like I just did a panel with Victor Laval's like The Changeling which is like this beautiful horror novel mm. and like that's a book that's getting like a lot of sort of like mainstream attention while also being this like really incredible sort of work of horror and like all those things exist on the same plane and so it's like cool that's awesome like can we move on and just like make good art and just like yeah. keep going you know because like that to me is like that's what I'm more concerned with but I read I mean I read across genres like I read a lot of realism that I absolutely love so even though I write, I don't write realism, like I'm very interested in it as a genre and like what it has to say to me and, and you know, examples of it. So, yeah. I also, you know, as you're to kind of round out this arc that we're trying to draw around genre, I am also interested in the way that your fiction. So I'm thinking of that story of yours, especially heinous, which is subtitled 247 Views of Law and Order SVU. What I loved about that both is reflecting the actual experience someone has watching Law & Order SVU. I used to try to watch it and this, 
I think maybe is proof of my masochistic constitution that I would watch it to try to go to bed and then I'd find that obviously oh, wow. I could not go to bed because yeah, I was yeah, so yeah. disturbed. But then I was thinking about how you talk about how that show perpetuates a kind of violence and our really bizarre but also like very very problematic investment in witnessing suffering in a way that we don't have to like there's a prurient desire there that I think is really interesting so how do you balance the negative or the kind of seedy side of audience expectation with like trying to push against it a little bit when you take up some of these genres that are about consumption right horror is another perfect example of that sure that's a really good question I guess I I mean, I think about myself as an audience member. I, all the genres I write in are genres that I also read. Right. And so I think about like what I take pleasure out of. So like when I was writing Especially Heinous, you know, it, it's relevant to me. It's interesting to me that the only Law & Order that's currently running, the only version of the franchise is the rape one, right? Like Law & Order SVU is like the one that, it's yeah. the one that has like sort of the largest fan base. And it is a work that very imperfectly deals with its own material. So like sometimes they're like a little woke te- teensy sure. bit and then they like fall back and you're like, oh my God, who is, you know, like, like there's this sense of like, you may not understand the nuances of your own premise and you might not understand, like <laughs> you might not be able to like critique like they're trying to critique it, but like aren't very good at it. Yeah. And that is very interesting to me as a writer. So yeah, so I mean, when I'm writing, I think about it's like the pleasures of like that show, right? It's like this sort of monster of the week style. It's the ability for like problems to be solved. It's these like weird, these characters that gain their humanity. These characters, those are the repeating like detectives through these like weird episodes that are written by like lots of different people it's like they're sort of gathering a character like as the seasons yeah. go on right and there's this so that is interesting to me so like as a viewer and then as like a thinker that's like that's what makes me really interested and so yeah sort of like going at the pleasures of the show and then also like turning aside and being like but also what does it mean that we like are obsessed with the show culturally and like what does it mean that we find sexual violence so easy to show yeah you know, it's a dance and it's hard. And I feel like sometimes I'll write something that's like, like I feel like The Resident, which is like a novella in the book, the first draft I did of that story. That's the ghost story. Right? Yeah, it's, it's like, like a sort of a gothic. like a Victorian yeah, ghost yeah, story. Yeah, it's sort of a yeah. gothic, probably the closest I have to a haunted house story in that book. That's a story where like the first draft of it I did, I wasn't exactly, like everyone was like, well, you've told a story, but like there's no reflection. You're just sort of like telling this like gothic story. And I had to kind of go back and think, what am I trying to say? Like, what am I getting at and then it kind of gained this extra dimension that was just beyond what I like about reading haunted house stories Mm. and became more like that plus my own thoughts about sort of in this case like women's minds and like mad women in the attic narratives and like what that means so I feel like it's this this constant balance I'm trying to like establish hopefully successfully so I was wondering what when you're teaching something like hauntings and something how does the act of sort of teaching these stories influence your understanding of it, change how you write about it maybe? Because I find that usually when you suddenly have an audience for ideas, it's so different than when you're just writing. Yeah, I mean, talking, honestly, a lot of things happen when I teach in the sense that I have to articulate things that otherwise I would just sort of instinctually have a sense of. And so like having to like sit down and, and sort of explain it 
has given me lots of ideas because it's like I'm having to sort of, or, or like even just conversations my students and I are having, where my students are like super smart and are like saying really smart things. And I'm like, that's so smart. I'm going to like think about this element in a totally new way. And that's really exciting to me as a writer. And then, yeah, so I really love teaching and I feel like it does like feed my own like curiosity and inquiry because like it's, I'm getting that from my students also and I have yeah. to kind of, you know, and I feel like also the nice thing about, especially teaching a class that's, so like this class that I'm doing with The Haunted House is, is new. So I'm gonna be like experimenting as a teacher, trying a bunch of texts like that aren't necessarily even, like I'm doing some like nonfiction, te- like I'm just gonna be like kind of playing around and like seeing. Can you tell us your syllabus? Well, it's still a work in progress. Yeah. So the <laughs> books that I, the nonfiction books I want to teach are, I want to teach Ghostland mm-hmm. by Colin Dickey. I really want to do The Poetics of Space by... Baclard? Yes. Thank you. I was like, a name I cannot pronounce, a French guy, which has been very interesting to me oh, yeah. in this sort of process. I'm going to do some other architectural theory. I'm like looking and I'm still kind of like trying to pick a book. And then I also am doing Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. Mm. I'm going to, we're going to watch some movies. I'm doing The House Next Door by Anne Rivers Seddons, which is like one of my mm. absolute favorite haunted house novels, which is so good. Mm. Very scary. It was like written in the 70s. I had never heard of it and someone recommended it to me and I read it in one setting. Like it was just phenomenally scary. I'm probably going to do my do Beloved. Like, I'm still kind of, like, bringing the list together. But, yeah, so I'm, I'm just sort of trying to get it set up. So that's going to be something I do this fall because it's not until next spring. But yeah. And you have a book coming out next year that's a memoir, right? Yes, I am. So since you work in genre, maybe talk about, did you have any hesitations about the genre of memoir and what that demands or what's normal in that genre? Yeah, memoir is really scary, as it turns out. I'm really, I'm still writing it. It's a lot. Nonfiction is very scary because like that sort of, that veil of fiction that you can sort of draw around you in protection is like snatched away and you are just nude before the world and it's very scary. So yeah, so, but actually what's weird is I am engaging with different genres within within that book is I, I sort of have these elements of like using tropes as a way of like interrogating elements. So it's about domestic violence and same-sex relationships. And I do like a close reading of the film Gaslight. Mm-hmm. And I also talk about some of like historical material. And then I also, you know, do this like sort of personal memoir stuff. And then also I use things like generation ships and haunted houses and as like these sort of telling these like little mini stories that sort of get at these elements so it's like a very weird book I'm really glad Grey Wolf is publishing it because I don't know who else would publish it it's so strange but yeah so this very sort of like just weird like nonfiction project which is yeah and it's scary and definitely when I started moving into like essay and nonfiction I was very anxious and I remain anxious I don't know what to say about it it's like it's like really scary and I feel like you know and like whenever you learn a new genre it's always this like weird learning curve where you're trying to figure out like am I doing this right and so you just start like reading so I'm just like reading lots of other sort of experimental books of like nonfiction and like thinking about what's happening in them and how the authors are achieving their goals and like just trying to imitate it you know what are some of the books that you were you're reading so I've been reading like a lot of Maggie Nelson has been really influential I just read the one that I also that I read recently that I loved was Brian Blanchfield's Proxies hmm. which is like so good and is like again it's like experimental right like essay project I really love Kevin Brockmeyer has this incredible memoir have you mm-hmm. read uh, it has a really complicated title it's like a brief oh god it's like a few seconds of radiant film strip a memoir of seventh grade I think that's right and it's this like stunning memoir about this year of his middle school life and then in the center of the memoir there's this moment where time freezes and his adult self come and talks to his like middle grade self and it's like really beautiful and like this weird like sort of breaking of the rules right where like 
he, I told, I asked him about it once. He said that people thought he'd had like a nervous breakdown because they were like, they thought we thought like that you thought time had stopped. And he was like, no, it's just the device I was using to like have like my young self talk to my adult self. And it's like this really beautiful, beautiful memoir, like sort of slight memoir that's like really amazing. Interesting. And so I precise. That's, that's like a fantasy I constantly have. Talking oh, to talking my to your younger, younger self. self. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. talking to the younger selves of people I know. Yeah, totally, totally. To be like, oh, it's going to turn out fine. I know you in 20 yeah. years and you're It's going to be great. Race. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, my younger self was a real hot mess. So <laughs> right. I just want to tell her it like, all worked out okay. Don't like, get your tongue good. pierced. That is a bad idea. Oh, my God. Right. Yeah, somebody needs to say that. Well, so we will end it there <laughs> okay, with all of us looking forward, not to a tongue piercing, but yes. to your forthcoming memoir. Yes. I can't wait to oh, read. Do you have a title for that? The title that it was sold as is no longer the title, okay. and I'm still trying to pick okay. the title, so I, right. I'm afraid to say it because it's like, it might yeah. change don't, tomorrow. No, don't, don't, don't but yes, it's coming out fall 2019, so okay. from Great Wolf Great. Press. Thank right. you. We very much look forward to that. Thank, Thank you, you so much. We've been speaking with Carmen Maria Machado. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at the LA Times Festival of Books at the University of Southern California. You've been listening to our conversation with Carmen Maria Machado. And now, on to our interview with Jenny Zhang, author of Sour Heart. We're at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, and we're excited to be speaking with writer, poet, and essayist Jenny Zhang. Shang's writing has appeared in Poetry Magazine, BuzzFeed, and Rookie, among other places. Her debut short story collection, Sour Heart, which explores a number of different experiences from the perspective of Chinese-American girls coming of age, was published late last year by Random House's Lenny Books. Sour Heart made its paperback debut in May. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thank you for having me. So first of all, can you just give our listeners a little bit of a sense of what the book is about? It's like a coming of age tale, but can you flesh out the details for us? Yeah, it's seven interconnected short stories and it's sort of like a group portrait of a very specific community and cohort of Chinese American immigrants who immigrated in the 90s, not long after China opened up. And it's mostly um, these families are academics and artists who had kind of had a difficult time um, back in China during the Cultural Revolution. And it's sort of um, loosely um, about their experiences as understood and narrated through the lens of these young girls. They range from like seven to 19 years old in Mm. these stories. And I'm really bad at describing plot, and maybe I don't even have one or any. Um, but they range in being about like growing up, girlhood, sexuality, family, identity, poverty. I- I'm just using words now that describe uh, <laughs> themes and not right. actually describing the stories because I have a hard time doing that. And what well, made you write them as a group of stories as opposed to a novel that followed like a group of people? I don't know. It felt like the novel form was too epic um, and it was too linear. And I know that obviously there are novels that are anti-epics and not linear and not narrative. But there was something about the short story form that felt right. Um, It felt like it was a collection of stories and not some sort of um, big, huge arc. And I also wanted to show um, through stories repetition. 
that there's a lot of similarities um, in these families' lives. Um, so all of the uh, six families in these seven stories, they all converge around this um, kind of squalid apartment in Washington Heights where um, a lot of the families first lived and shared a single room with four mattresses on the floor. But all the families kind of branch off and, and don't really connect to each other after that. And I also wanted to show the ways in which, like, especially when you immigrate to America and you kind of undergo a really uh, strenuous and difficult ordeal, there's like this bonding. It's like these families are like war buddies, but like once they're out of that, they don't, they're not like connected necessarily, but there was like a temporary community that they built together. And I wanted kind of to show the ways in which um, these families weave in and out of each other's lives, not in significant major ways, but in insignificant ways. But also these families become cautionary tales for each other. Mm. And so sort of the ways in which like a, a sort of fringe person who like appears on the, you know, outskirts of our lives can become symbolic and become yeah, a cautionary tale or mythological. And I just felt like that was better done in short stories. And I also didn't feel like I could or wanted to, I guess, imitate great literature. I felt like I wanted to do something a little more humble and small. Can you talk about both, I would imagine, the opportunities and challenges of focalizing all of this kind of like rich story that you're bringing together? Um, not just in the short story format, but also from the perspective of very young girls, right? Mm. Like, how did you inhabit that experience in order to write about it? And what kind of did it allow you to get purchase on? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think I was really concerned with power at the time when I was mm. writing these stories. I don't think I would have described it as such back then. But looking back, I realized... Um, I was really obsessed with power and access and I was really obsessed with people who present one way but uh, feel differently inside and so um, I was interested in these girls who might be kind of quiet and reserved on the outside who you know the kind of girl who in fourth grade like the teacher might take three months to remember their name because they seem so negligible and insignificant but inside they're huge and they're mm. raging and I feel like there's like an internal performance especially when you're young and going through puberty or adolescence where you're constantly like trying out identity and you do that by performance by by trying to like lay claim to whatever identity you'd like to be seen as um, and some of it happens literally in your mind and, and never gets externalized. And so it felt like the first person, the, the, the first person um, was like a good vehicle for like inhabiting that performance. But also I felt like nostalgia was like a literary form I wanted to play with. And mm. like these girls are, they're actually not girls when they're telling their stories. They're, they're actually grown and they're women and they're looking back on their childhood. And sometimes they slip back into a nostalgic mode or they slip back into a childish register or voice, especially when they're accessing something traumatic and difficult. As yeah. I think we all do, we like revert to our animal selves and become, you know, like our darkest child child selves or whatever and I wanted um, that elasticity of being able to swing back into childhood but knowing that it was actually a retrospective narrator 
how has your understanding of female power changed since then, or if it has? I think <laughs> this is not a very smart answer, but I think just social media mm -hmm. has... I mean, it's really interesting when you meet someone who is like a personality on Twitter and who is really charismatic and really funny on Twitter. And then in real life, they're extremely quiet and subdued um, and, and mouse-like. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I, I guess that's like a way in which like now we can all like have this internal performance be externalized. Mm -hmm. And I think... Um, especially with women and the ways in which women can be, I guess, both empowered and, like, I don't know, damaged by social media. Yeah. Um, that has been something that I've found really fascinating. And I think, like, the girls in these stories exist in the 90s in New York, but I feel like the grown-up version of these girls, like, they would be on Instagram. Yeah. And they <laughs> would probably write really long captions on Instagram. And if you met them in real life, they probably wouldn't say much. Um, and so, like, Wait, what do you something. think is the difference between those two things? <laughs> what makes it difficult in real life to, like, have that kind of voice that you also have in a public way on social media? I don't know. I mean, I think with... The thing is, like, with the girls I'm writing about in these stories, I think they're very audacious and mm. they're very, um, they're kind of, like, bursting and overflowing, but they are growing up both in their homes and in the schools they go to. They're surrounded by people who kind of punish them for being this way, who uh, chastise them. Mm -hmm. And I think over time, when people keep reflecting what they think you are back to you, it's hard not to internalize that. And I think it's a very lucky and fortunate person who can overcome that, who is given resources to overcome that. And I'm not sure if all of the girls in my stories have those internal and external resources. Maybe some do. But I think it's also just really seductive to create a fantasy of yourself and like broadcast it. Like I right. do that, everyone does that. It's, it's intoxicating <laughs> to do that. How much time do you spend on social media? Well, I deleted Twitter and Facebook a while ago, Facebook a long time ago. And I delete Instagram off my phone like for two weeks at a time. And then it's on for a week. And I'm insane for that one week that it's on. Instagram is the hard one to give up. <laughs> I think because it has this also this veneer of being kind of non, not non-threatening, but it's like exactly. non-complicated in the ways that Which Twitter. Is not true. And, yeah, it's yes. not true. But because it seems to be just like the kind of surface yes. of the image that it's like, oh, I'm just, this is my friend at the beach. And, it's a little you know. harder to go like back and forth debates and stuff mm -hmm. on exactly. Instagram. And it's the not format. shareable. Yes. So you don't feel like it's just going to like go everywhere immediately. Yes. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, I'm sure writers that have been on the show have talked about this, but like... I don't know, there's so much pressure when you're a young writer or just a writer in general to have a social media presence. Yeah, and right. so I, I did keep Instagram to be totally honest because I was just like, I don't know how I will communicate any of the events I'm doing otherwise. 
and I'm going to get too much like pushback if I delete everything. Can you actually right. talk about that pressure? Because I'm, I'm fascinated by this, the pressure to be a brand. Because yeah. I think many writers, what is wonderful about writing is that there appears <laughs> to be this distance between like the product that you produce, right. the, thing, the voice that you put out there, and then the person that reads it and has an engagement with it. Right. Right? And so I think many of us love that, like, oh, well, it's just me here. I'm here at home. Right. And then my my writing life exists somewhere out there. Right. Whereas, like, you increasingly feel pressured to collapse those things. That yeah. The writerly persona, which has some bearing to your real self, but it's not always one-to-one, is now forced to be in some ways one-to-one. Like, you have to be a product that's also out there. So how do you you navigate that? How do you think of that? I mean, obviously, you've walked away from it. Mm -hmm. But, like, what do you think about that as, like, a development that young writers are dealing with now? It's really... I think it's really difficult because I think it really encroaches on, just like you said, like the conditions that are necessary to think and write and imagine freely Um, because at least the kind of writing I really like and um, am drawn to is the kind of writing that shouldn't and can't be distilled to a caption or to um, a memorable like quotable anything Um, I I, I like I I don't know I I like um, things that require basically sitting down alone with it and reading by yourself for hours at a time and um it's it's really I don't I just don't think most writers have the kind of personality that is suitable for social media (laughs) I don't know there's a there's a rare you know sliver of that Venn diagram of writers who are are both really great at writing and really great at social media. Well, I think there's the, I mean, the old version of that, I, I guess, would be somebody like Norman Mailer That's or right. yeah. Joan Didion, right? Where, like, right. their their personas were right. something that was always a part of their of their writing career. Right. It was obviously for, formed in a, in a way that was separate from social media because right. that did not exist. It was in stabbing your wife at a party. Right. But, um, which better um more active i guess uh but it, it did it, it it's not new necessarily where a success right. in the writing world is is really coupled with a shaped persona it's true it's yeah. true yeah it is it is creating your own mythology right and being incredibly seductive with your own mythology and you you've written personal essay as well right yeah. a lot so maybe you could talk a little bit about the difference of you know, working, writing about yourself, and then I don't know how autobiographical the stories mm. are in the book, but just that, the, how you approach those, mm. accessing different parts of yourself or your own personal history when you're writing it as, you know, yourself or as a character. I mean, it's interesting because I, I don't feel very trained um, or, to be honest, good at nonfiction. It, it's something I did out of financial necessity because it's really hard to make a living writing fiction and poetry um and I I moved to New York and I was surrounded by people who were freelancing I didn't even know what the media quote-unquote meant until I moved to New York and met people in quote-unquote the media and um you know I'm not very good at it I'm not I'm not an efficient writer I I I'm very bad at um making you know like points, um, which uh, I, I would often get like 
like feedback back from editors being like, can you just still your main point in one sentence? And I would be like, if I could do that, why wouldn't I just give you one sentence? Why would I need to give you all the other sentences? Um, so I just don't have that mindset. But it is, I mean, it's also part of the economy of being a writer now where you're expected to write personal essays. That's part of building your brand, building your following. And I didn't necessarily know that, but I did catch on pretty quickly when I saw how personal essays were being read and shared, you know, voraciously in a way that fiction wasn't. And even with fiction that is shared like that, it's often called a personal essay, like cat person, everyone, I don't know, for some reason calls it an essay, even though it's explicitly fiction. And so I have, I guess, an ambivalent relationship to it because I feel like I'm not very good at it, but I also feel like it is the one form of writing that is accessible mm -hmm. and a lot of people um, read it and I do value like people reading my work. I don't know if I answered your question. I, what was your relationship like to let's say writing or the media world prior to New York? What, what was what was it, your there understanding was no of it? relationship because um, I, I I guess I'm just gonna admit this I didn't yeah. read um, magazines really um, I just read novels and mm -hmm. poetry books and short story collections and you know I didn't like read the New Yorker um, I didn't grow up in my family still doesn't even know what the New Yorker is um, they oh, I, only know what the New York Times is so um, I can almost guarantee my parents have <laughs> no idea what <laughs> I don't know if it's, I think in, I mean I don't know if your your family if they're immigrants but yeah um, they are the media world is like is not it does not seem like an accessible thing I think to, yeah. to an immigrant household it, it is its own it bubble was, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean I went to um, I went to Stanford for undergrad because I wanted to go to California. I had no idea what Stanford was. And then I went to Iowa because at Stanford, uh, my teachers were like, go to Iowa. Mm -hmm. And when I went to Iowa, I mean, Iowa, uh, the Iowa Writers Workshop is its own bubble. Um, and you can, you can kind of like X yourself out for two years when you're there because it's fully funded. So there's no financial pressure. Mm -hmm. And so I never felt any like awareness of like literary trends or like what's happening, what's the discussion in um, the, the literary world or in the media world. And it wasn't until I moved to New York and started writing for Rookie Magazine, which is a magazine for teenage girls started and founded and edited by Tavi Gevinson, that I started to meet people in the media. Mm -hmm. And I started to understand that you can make a writing career by writing, <laughs> which I didn't even know was possible. I, you know, naively thought that you just couldn't and you had to get another job or be an academic. Mm -hmm. Right. Does your family read your work? Yeah, uh, they do. I mean, my dad um, hasn't read a book in 30 years, but mm -hmm. he did read my book. Oh. Um, what <laughs> He really liked it. He thought it was really funny, which, because um, sometimes people will ask me, like, what did your family think? Because um, I think people, I think people, like, underestimate sometimes the people closest to them and think mm -hmm. um, that the people closest to them will read and only look for themselves and look for clues to how you really feel about them 
But actually, um, and I come from like a, a fairly like, you know, my family likes reading and I come from like a fairly like literate family. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, like my dad is a reader, even though he hasn't run 30 years, but he knows what characterization is. Oh, right, he knows sure. like what a fictionist. Yeah, he understands <laughs> yeah. hyperbole, exaggeration. He gets right. all of that. Um, so for him, he actually surprisingly read it as if he picked it up, like as if I were a stranger to him and he had picked it up off the shelf and he read it, yeah, very magnanimously. Wow. Pretty <laughs> impressive for a dad. Yeah, he's a cool yeah. guy. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to return uh, just to the idea of writing from a place of nostalgia, writing mm. nostalgically, because I'm not sure how old you are, but... 34. Okay, 34. <laughs> so when you're thinking back on... The, the further away you get, even at 34, your teenage years are the, some of the most formative times mm-hmm. in your life. And it get, but it gets harder to remember everything, mm-hmm. and, and you do become more nostalgic. Mm-hmm. What was it like to write in that mode and to recollect? And um, nostalgia seems to connote that it's only positive memories, mm-hmm. but of course, there's painful aspects of being a teenager as well that you write about. So Mm. talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, childhood is the easiest thing to be nostalgic about. And um, it's really easy to idealize it. It's really easy to, I think, like, it's really tempting to want to have an origin story that is about, like, innocence and then fall from innocence and I guess I was interested in the ways in which childhood and adolescence is is both simple and extremely complex because um, at least for me it was the only time in my life where I felt like my life was literally in the hands of other people, adults who were supposed mm. to care for me, who were supposed to guide me and teach me. And, but it was also a time in my life where a lot of the adults in my life were not there. And sometimes for reasons that were very complicated, like very understandable reasons, like they had to work three jobs. But it's like, what do you do with the feeling of being resentful, of being left alone? and the feeling of knowing you have to understand and empathize because Mm -hmm. you are a child and someone has to look after you? Or like, what do you do about the feeling of going to a shitty school where the teachers are terrible, but then when you get older, you realize teachers have terrible jobs and they're horribly underpaid Mm -hmm. and they have their own problems. But at the same time, you're a child and you can't be expected to know that or empathize with that. You can only be expected to want to be kept safe and want to be looked after. So I wanted to like, I guess I wanted to have the space of time pass and I wanted to use the retrospective to kind of mash all of those you know, sort of contradictory things together. And also I wanted to write about what happens when you grow up poor, but you you kind of uh, move up in social class. And I, I think I wanted to also write about the ways in which you can like look back at a time when it was extremely difficult and feel pain, but also romanticize that pain and mm-hmm. almost like 
it, you almost, it's not that you want to go back to that time, but there is something extraordinary about relying um, on each other in times of, you know, in, enduring trauma. And there's this feeling of like, you've been through a war together and it's not like you want to go back to war, but it's like that intensity, you might never get that again. And so I wanted to write about that and not in an idealizing or, or necessarily romanticizing way, but I wanted to kind of look at that and investigate that and be like really multifaceted about that. Okay, well actually that's a perfect way to kind of wrap up because I wanted Great. to ask you what's coming next? Like what are you working on? What are you interested in working on? I'm working on some poetry. Um, it's I guess like a palate cleanser from fiction <laughs> right now. Um, and that's um, because I'm not so concerned with narrative and stories I mean there are stories but it's sort of more playing with language mm -hmm. um, playing with um, kind of they're smaller units but they're more I guess philosophical in some ways and I don't know it's just fun to not write sentences <laughs> um, I, I, I'm so sick of sentences um, and uh, I'm working, I am working on a novel. Um, I can't say anything about it because there's been nothing actually written yet. It's just in <laughs> my head. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. We've been speaking with Jenny Zhang, author of Sour Heart. Thank you so much for joining us here at the LA Times Festival of Books. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour. Mm -hmm.